Hello, welcome to You Don't Know Mojack. My name is Ryan. My name's Brent. And this episode, we're discussing SST-194, the Elliot Sharp Carbon album, Larynx. I noticed that I'm pronouncing larynx different than everyone else, but we'll get to that right off the top here. But first of all, Brent, we do have a special guest. Yeah, you bet. We've got Charles K. Noyes on the show today. Awesome. It's a great interview with lots of funny stories, too, yeah. which I, I just I loved that. I loved it. But first, let me get this out of the way. Is it larynx or larynx? You're asking the wrong guy. I'm just going to avoid saying the title. <laughs> well, how do you pronounce esophagus? Esophagus. Yeah, well, suit yourself. Anyways, why don't you hit us with some spiels, Brant, before we get into this wild record? Sure, man. So, uh, right off the bat, Ryan, I just want to address a, a huge controversy that came up last week, and that's our top 10 that uh-huh. we were talking about doing this year. The list, you, the list do, you have se- do you have second thoughts now, or what? Yeah, the listeners have spoken, and they don't like it. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> okay, yeah, I'm making that up. I don't like it. There's a record coming out uh, after that self-imposed deadline that could very well be in my top 10, because it's a band that I love, so... Okay. We're so going we to have to punt it to the new year. We have to do top 10s in the new year, it's as quite, usual. It's causing me too much anxiety, man. Okay. Well, I, I'm good to go with whatever. I, I'm pretty sure that one of the records in my top 10 this year is going to be one that was technically released in 2020, but it has a release date of 2021 everywhere. And, you know, even when we do it in the first month of the year, you know, the next year, there's going to be some stragglers, but okay. let's, let's go conservative and uh, do it in there early in the new year. I love it. Okay. Well, I'll check the bylaws and make sure that, you know, that there, it doesn't specifically say you can't do that, what you're suggesting right now, but uh, I'll get back to you on that. You may have to apply for a ruling. I, well, we'll see. I, I don't want to take this to arbitration, Ryan, but I'm not. <laughs> <laughs> All right, come on. Continue on with the spiels. Okay, Ryan, earlier this year, a listener, Nick Schultz, reached out and hit me to a killer YouTube channel entitled cartoon man uh there's various you know punk rock clips on this channel some really cool stuff like uh this 1982 news special called we destroy the family punks versus parents it's got some oh it's got some is it like uh phil donahue clips and stuff like that uh i don't think it's phil donahue it's more like a local cable thing okay you know there's movies like suburbia there's the cuckoo's nest documentaries on there the slog movie uh, a documentary called Not Dead Yet about mid-80s Toronto hardcore. Wow. Yeah, but the real gold, Ryan, is about two dozen episodes of New Wave Theatre. So Nick reminded me about New Wave Theatre in his email, and it kind of jogged my memory about when we had Meryl Ward on the show. Yeah, yeah, we mentioned it at yeah. least once. Yeah, and he was talking about a bunch of this stuff, um, particularly this guy, David Jove. So... I tracked down this book right here, Ryan. This book is called In Heaven, Everything is Fine by Josh Frank with Chris Buckholtz. It's subtitled The Unsolved Life of Peter Ivers and the Lost History of New Wave Theatre. It's basically Peter Ivers' life story, who was the host of New Wave Theatre. And it's just an excellent book about a bit of a lost era, I would say. So Peter grew up in Boston 
or actually the suburb Brookline. And after high school, he went to Harvard. He kind of fell in with the crowd that would kind of created the National Lampoons and took it to Hollywood. Okay. People like Doug Kenny, who was like his best friend his whole life, who co-founded National Lampoons and went, uh, he wrote like Animal House and Caddyshack. And uh, he was friends with Harold Ramis, who directed Ghostbusters and Stripes, tons more. Uh, while he's at Harvard, P- Peter really gets into the blues harmonica. And he starts going to Chicago and like going to see Muddy Waters and he goes for extended stays and he's learning harp from Little Walter and Junior Wells and people like that. He eventually moves to New York, signs a deal with Epic and forms the Peter Ivers band uh, with Yolande Bavin on vocals. And in 1969, they released this totally gonzo record called Night of the Blue Communion. It sounds like nothing you've ever heard. The closest I could come up with is like the Velvets with Nico on vocals, uh, but with an insanely good harp player just honking on the bobo for the whole record. Hmm. Uh, then he moves out to L.A. where his Lampoon's friends are, are, and he hooks up with Van Dyke Parks and starts writing this record, Terminal Love, uh, which is kind of a glammy avant-garde rock album with Peter on vocals and harp. Uh, came out in 1974, Warner Brothers. He does have a few records, uh, a few which were released posthumously. Uh, he meets David Lynch and writes the song that this book is named after for the movie Eraserhead. Uh, he gets involved with Devo because they love that song and they want to cover it. And he's like, I think he actually performed with Devo. He himself is like this super avant-garde performer. This is in the early mid-70s. Like He's often performing in nothing but a diaper. Uh, the book just has people like Chevy Chase, Bill Murray popping up in it. He's friends with John Belushi, who's getting super into L.A. punk a bit later on. There's a full account of the SNL Fear DC crew debacle oh, yeah. in the book. Right, right. Later on, the book gets into the New Wave Theater era, which, like I said, Peter hosted, and which was directed by David Jove, which is the guy Merrill primarily talked about in her interview. In the book, there's interviews about New Wave Theater with Dave Alvin, uh, Durf Scratch of Fear, who was good friends with Peter and John Belushi, talking about Belushi jamming with Fear and stuff. Uh, Keith Morris is in the book, Todd Homer of Angry Samoans, Jello Biafra, who's a big fan of Peter's music, uh, Penelope Spheris, lots of famous filmmakers like John Landis, David Lynch, Francis Ford Coppola. Unfortunately, after filming an episode of... Uh, New Wave Theater, on March 3rd, 1983, Peter Ivers was found bludgeoned to death in his downtown L.A. loft. Nobody was ever charged with his murder. There's lots of speculation in the book about who it could have been. Someone even says they think it was El Duce. Uh, (laughs) From the mentors? Yeah. Oh, my God. But the one person everyone seems to think was the most likely suspect is David Jove, which leads me to this book. Freedoms by David Jove and the Meaning of Existence by Ed Ox, who was a writer on New Wave Theater. Uh, huh. I haven't read this one yet. Can't wait to get into it. Uh, sounds like David Jove had a really interesting life. New Wave Theater gets tons of credit in this book for kind of being a precursor to MTV. Uh, it had comedy sketches, monologues, but mainly tons of great music. For starters, lots of bands that I've never even heard of or you know, just L.A. punk bands and weird art bands like 
Ivy and the Eaters, Frisbees from Hell, Forbidden Colors, Oblong Rondas, Art Thieves, Lost Microwaves. But then, Ryan, Bad Religion is on it, like mm. Teenage Bad Religion. Yeah, yeah. The Plugs, Stepmothers, Geza X, Angry Samoans, 45 Grave, Blasters, Dead Hippie, Circle Jerks, Vox Pop, Zoog's Rift doing Heart Attack, <laughs> Legal Weapon, Top Jimmy, D.I., uh, Sex Sick uh, with a young Kira Rossler on bass, Fear, of course, Power Trip with Ed Danke and Jeff Dahl, The Dead Kennedys. You can see all of this on YouTube. Definitely worth checking out. And those, well, so far, the uh, In Heaven Everything is Fine book is great. And I will report back on the David Jove book. And you can get to all of these New Wave Theater clips or episodes via that YouTube channel that Schultz yep. hit, hipped you to. Yep. And what's it called again? I think it's called Cartoon Man. Cartoon Man YouTube channel. Okay. If you just search New Wave Theater, I bet it'll come up. Yeah, yeah. That's it, man. What do you have? Okay, cool. Well, I actually have a couple of uh, quick Rock Doc mentions now that we're talking about New Wave Theater. A while back, I mentioned that there was this robo documentary floating out there. Or at least I saw a preview for it, but I couldn't locate it. It's now up on YouTube, but it's mostly in Spanish. So I didn't get as much out of it as I would would have hoped. But it's still a cool watch. So if you want to uh, uh, check out a robo documentary, very cool. Again, like there's only two people arguably who played with you know black flag and the misfits for sure robo and maybe chuck biscuits if you count danzig right, so right. Uh, obviously robo was a legendary drummer and, and there's uh definitely some great footage on there too mm -hmm. the second one that i wanted to mention is a rock doc that has been out for a long time but i didn't know it existed and i'm curious whether you knew it existed it's called freaks in love a quarter century in underground rock with Alice, Alice Donut. Yeah, have, have you seen it. that before? I have, you have it. it. I have it on DVD. Yeah, it's great. Is it? Okay, so I didn't even know it existed. And apparently it came out... Well, no, not apparently. I mean, I did look it up and I saw that it was part of Virus 439. There was a, a two-CD set that Alternative Tentacles put out in 2012, like an Alice Donut collection. And there was a bonus DVD that came with it. I didn't even look at this because I'm like, I, I already have all the Alice Donut. I don't need this this two CD comp. I completely missed that it came with a bonus DVD. And you can get the bonus DVD as a standalone, though. Yeah. So it's like way, way high up on my to-do list. I'm shocked and dismayed that I didn't know that this existed. I must see it as soon as possible. But it's good, hey? Yeah, I bought that three-disc set. I think it was a record store day thing, if I'm remembering right. In 2012? I think so, yeah. Oh, okay, no way. Yeah. Man, I can't believe... I knew that you would either want to know about it or already knew about it. So, anyways. Um, but keeping on the films tip, everyone should go to stonefilmsnyc.com. This is a, a website headed up by a guy named Drew Stone, a filmmaker and video director of hardcore and rap videos. Kind of seems like a New York video focus guy um, he also did the documentary all ages the boston hardcore documentary mm -hmm. but 
there is a new book that you can order from stonefilmsnyc.com called The New York Hardcore Chronicles. It is uh, held out as an uncensored oral history of the early New York hardcore scene as told through flyers of the era with over 200 exclusive interviews and never-before-seen photos and ephemera. It's limited edition, hand-numbered, and looks really cool. It looks really kind of private press DIY type of uh, New York hardcore chronicled. And there's a fair amount of them out there. This one really looks like it has a lot of visual imagery. I haven't seen it myself, but it looks really cool. And if it's anything like um, the videos and the Boston hardcore documentary, um, which I've also not seen, although you can see a preview of it on this website, um, it looks like a good one to get back into some eighties hardcore. Nice. That's all I got, man. I think the, uh, the hamsters are on the loose. Should we get over to some larynx? Sure. Larynx? Larynx? History lesson, part one. All right, so we've had Elliot Sharp on a ton of times, and I mean in terms of performing or related to some of the bands we've had on the show. Two ones to mention right off the bat, though, are obviously SST 128 and 129, the In the Land of the Yahoos and Tessellation Row, both of which had Elliot on as a guest. Mm-hmm. Uh, but this is a another completely different Elliot Sharp treatment. It's wild, and it takes a few listens for me to be completely honest. But by the end of the week, I was like really, really digging it in a unexpected way. Yeah, for sure. Me too, man. Yeah, we've had him on a few times. Uh, also 167 semantics and mm-hmm. 191 just recently with Mafungo bugged and we'll be se- be seeing him again which makes me really happy because uh, I love his music man he has an entire chapter on carbon in, in his excellent 2019 autobiography irrational music on Terra Nova press uh, which I can't recommend enough I'm just gonna read some excerpts from it here Carbon was first conceived in April 1983, shortly before my first full-on European tour, by crossbreeding the language of my solo music with the heavy grooves of ISM. ISM, Ryan, is like his no-wave avant-garde project that he had around 82-83 that I'd highly recommend. Very post-punk sound to it, put through that downtown downtown New York E-sharp filter. Yeah, yeah. Uh, A lot of these same players that we've talked about or will talk about, like Bill Laswell, Charles, Mark Miller. Uh, If you can track down the expanded edition of the album Knots on CD, it's got almost all of the ISM stuff on it, including the song Carbon, which is, I think, the first, you know, use of that word in a Elliot Sharp project. Carbon debuted at the Speed Trials Festival at White Columns Gallery in Soho in May 1983, alongside performances by Lydia Lunch, The Fall, Swan, Sonic Youth, Beastie Boys, and Toy Killers. Memorialized on the great Homestead comp. Mm-hmm. Uh, in October of 83, Ryan, he's touring Europe. Uh, the conditions are harsh. He's playing squats and sometimes not getting paid. Uh, he's really struggling and, you know, starting to second-guess his choice to live, you know, an artist's life. Here's what he says in his book. Returning to New York, I had come to a crux point. After four years of intense involvement in the scene, I felt that I needed a major change in direction, a hiatus from music and downtown life. During this period, I completely cut myself off from almost everyone I knew. 
I have no memory of even touching an instrument. And he just goes on to, to you know, talk about some of the reasons why and, you know, what he, what he did during this time. And then fast forwarding, Ryan, this is the most interesting part to me. Check this out. March 4th, 1984, a blisteringly cold night outside and pretty chilly inside my 7th Street pad as well. After a supper of psilocybin mushrooms, I set out to explore the sonics of the Fibonacci numbers and their application to guitar. Having found that certain ratios of adjacent Fibonacci numbers coincided with the ratios of just intoned intervals, I translated these ratios to a guitar tuning. And he goes on in his book to explain the guitar toning. And just intoned intervals are just a, a way of tuning an instrument so it can be played on open strings, I believe, mm-hmm. is kind of the idea. Mm-hmm. And yep. fi- Fibonacci numbers, we talked about these a bit on Tessellation Row. Still don't fully understand them, but it's a way of just, it's an algorithm basically to, a way to con- compose. It's a type of addition. Yeah. And then you can you can use it for composition as well, of course, because uh, yeah. music is based on math or derived from mathematical principles. Okay, so he goes on to talk about the tunings. I translated these ratios to a guitar tuning and re- restricted myself to playing only the open strings and overtones using various picking and tapping techniques. By the time I was ready to hear my thoughts in sound, it was after I after midnight. So I hunkered down next to the amplifier with a blanket over it and myself as not to disturb the neighbors. That tube amp also generated a nice amount of heat. Very welcome. The amp's pilot light glowed red, and I found myself in a cave, womb-like. As I began to excite the strings with plectra, fingers, and ebo, I was astounded at what I was hearing. Liquid harmonic melodies of a nature both exotic and familiar poured out of the speaker. I wasn't playing it, it was playing me. A powerful inevitability in the waves of overtones as defined by the physics of a vibrating string. Under that blanket, there was no amplifier, no apartment, no guitar, no self even, just the sound. It was nearly sunrise when I finished. Time had stopped in those hours, hunched next to the amp. One with the sound, much as it had in my marathon sessions with the shortwave radio as a teen. I emerged changed. So as you read this kind of section in his book, you get the sense that this kind of musical discovery really reawakened a passion for the music. Mm-hmm. gave him like an exciting new direction. Also around this time, he read William uh, Gibson's seminal cyberpunk novel, Neuromancer, which was had kind of just come out, n- had an enormous impact on him, if you recall, on Sonic Youth also while they were making the Sister album. Uh, it really got him thinking about how to incorporate the feeling the book gave him into his music. Here's what he says in his book. The opening to the cyber world hinted at the infinite, a void of our own making, but with rules yet to be written, realms to be discovered. How to map it to, to the music? The inner ear was buzzing and beeping, demanding attention. In the meantime, Carbon. I couldn't say that the music was cyberpunk, but I couldn't argue that it wasn't. I was shooting for something at once archaic and futuristic. Despite my new infatuations with the web, I used no digital processing on the recording. It was all vi- vibrating strings, columns of air, membranes, objects of metal. So he goes on to talk about the first Carbon album, uh, which was released by Elliot on his Zor label in 1984. 
It's self-titled and it's really a precursor to this record. The lineup is kind of pared down compared to later incarnations of Carbon. Uh, it's David Linton, Charles K. Noyes, and Mark Miller on drums, and Elliot Sharp on bass guitar, uh, or sorry, his guitar, bass, sax, clarinet, trombone. Uh, he, there's even some throat style singing on that record, which is something that's relevant to, to this one later on. Uh, it's also released by a German label, Atonal, uh, and they do a huge European tour to support it. He says, the next year was spent in planes, trains, and vans, and in concert halls, theaters, rock clubs, jazz clubs, galleries, lofts, basements, and squats in the U.S., Europe, and Japan. Here he is talking about that double-neck guitar bass, Ryan. Flush from touring, I had a custom double-neck guitar bass built to my specs by Ken Heer, who's on this record, actually, uh, to replace the rust rustic Hofner barely held together with duct tape and mismatched hardware. So the Hofner is... Uh, the double neck that he kind of built himself and then he he had the this one built and he says this new instrument included a hexaphonic pickup feeding a midi converter to trigger trigger samples that i would prepare on an ensonique mirage one of the first affordable samplers only 8-bit resolution but sounding very juicy so that's you know kind of what we talked about in the uh, land of the yahoos record that he was doing a lot of that sampling with his double neck. So he's, by this point, he's vir touring virtually nonstop between 84 and 87 with a different range of musicians. Semantics happened during this time, a bunch of tours with them. Uh, in 85, there's a second car carbon record called Six Songs slash Marco Polo's Argali. Uh, the B-side of that is one 20-minute track. Uh, at this point, he's starting to use some of his homemade instruments like pantars and slabs, which we'll hear more about. Mm -hmm. Here he is talking about pantars, Ryan, in his book. Fashioned from the stamped steel tops of large storage cans used for such substances as motto sodium glutamate, or sweeping compound, easy to mm -hmm. find while walking through Chinatown. A domed symbol serves as both bridge and resonator, and amplification is by contact mic. It's held like a guitar and may be picked bowed with an ebo or hammered and there's different variations the triple course bass pantar the hammer pan which is purely percussive played with mallets he says in its essential sound the pantar can be described as a cross between a tambora and a dumpster <laughs> hmm. the slabs are horizontal bases with movable, movable bridges and two pickups with separate outputs to generate a stereo field yeah if i if I know what they are on the record when I listen to it, and I'm not sure that I do, but it kind of reminds me of like Japanese taiko drums or something like that. Mm -hmm. I could be I could be wrong though. I'm just assuming that's what the pantar sounds like on the record. Yeah. Uh, in 1986, he releases the Fractal album, and although not credited to Carbon, it has many of the same players on it, very similar musically. Uh, to the other Carbon records, very rhythmic, and as the title implies, instead of the Fibonacci series, the rhythms are based on various aspects of fractal geometry. Mm -hmm. The good news for you and I, Ryan, and also for our listeners, is that early next year on episode 208, we're going to hear many of the tracks from these three records that I just mentioned on the Monster Curve compilation. So now we're getting into the, the Larynx era. 
The next manifestation of carbon took the form of a large ensemble with 13 members. On November 13 and 14, 1987, this ensemble premiered my Larynx, a commission of the Brooklyn Academy of Music's Next Wave Festival. Here he is just a little blurb, Ryan, on kind of the concept behind the title of this album. Larynx is analogy, the orchestra as throat. It follows a corollary to the throat as orchestra, the throat singing of the Arctic Inuit, uh, singing of Siberia and Mongolia, as well as related jaw harp techniques found throughout the world. So do you understand that kind of concept that he's trying to, to put forward, Ryan? The orchestra as throat? Yeah. For, yeah, I, I would say that when I was reading up on this album while listening to it, it started to make sense to me in the sense that, you know, the orchestra is like a single organism and and all the sound is coming out of the throat but a lot of the sounds that you'll hear on the record are kind of throat sounds to me anyways there's there's sounds that kind of sound like like frogs or grunts mm. or in so to me it seems like there's a lot of resonating sound like you get from throat sounds yeah. uh, i i guess um at least in part, there's definitely a lot of stuff that is, you know, not quite in that same tonal area. Like, you know, the marching drums that you'll hear, the uh, the pantar that, again, it kind of sounds like a taiko drum to me. Um, but again, I'm just thinking about the orchestra operating as a single organism and the sound coming out of uh, kind of a throat. Mm. Okay. Well, definitely... Uh you know, throat singing is something we kind of know a little bit about up here in Canada. You bet. Yep. It's a, it's a real interesting concept mm -hmm. to, to put um, a group of musicians through. Cause when you start to understand that that was the intent, you can start to hear it that way. Yeah. I've seen Tanya Tagak perform a few times and that's what she does is mm -hmm. traditional throat singing. And it's really something to see live for sure. Uh, a few of the performers I'll just talk about real quick, Ryan, so there's some context for the interview. First, the drummers, Bobby, Bobby Previtt, one of those New York musicians with a massive discography, played lots with Carbon, uh, Charlie Hunter, John Zorn, he's got records under his own name, Charles K. Noyes, played on lots of Elliott's records, uh, he's got records with uh, Henry Kaiser, uh, some cool avant-garde stuff under his own name, and he also co-founded the notorious group Toy Killers with Mark Miller, which you'll hear about in the interview. Right. David Linton, another one of these legendary downtown scene improvisers. Uh, he hand-built an early electroacoustic hybrid drum kit, which I think tar Charles talks about in the interview. He's played with everyone, Lee Ronaldo, Rice Chatham, Glenn Bronca, Diamanda Gallus. If you kind of want to hear his drum kit and what he was kind of creating, his solo 1986 album, uh, on Neutral Records is a cool listen. Uh, and then Sam Bennett, we've heard about him before on our Semantics episode. Uh, I've mentioned a few of his other projects like Chunk. My favorite project name, which I've never heard, by the way, of, of Sam's, is Sam Bennett's History of the Last Five Minutes. <laughs> <laughs> that is a good one. When you go through these guys', guys like discographies, it's like they're competing with Billy Childish to see who could put out the most 
So, and the fastest, yeah. the fastest. Yeah, the um, in the interview you do talk a bit about that that drum where it's like a it has a sensor it triggers sounds. Yeah. Kind of reminds me of that uh, that first drum kit that Devo had. When I don't know if you've read way way back when they were forming and they had that version of their drum kit which was like actual plastic or oil drums and they put these electric triggers on it that would trigger sampled sounds i don't know if it's the same thing seems like a similar concept like there were people toying around with that in the the mid 70s for sure Hmm. uh we've got mary wooten on cello ron lawrence on viola david soldier and laura seaton on violin all members of the soldier string quartet founded in 1985 by david soldier they've got a recording under their own name, uh, put out by Fred Frith's uh, Rift Records, actually. Uh, we saw them on the Tessellation Row uh, mm-hmm. episode. David Fulton and Ken here on trombone. Uh, they play the slab and the pantars. Leslie Dalaba on trumpet and slab, and you'll hear more about them in the interview. And then, of course, Elliot on double neck guitar bass, sampler, pantar, soprano sax, tenor sax, bass clarinet. Kind of cool though when you think about Elliot and what he was doing at this time. Like he really contributed in his own way to DIY culture. Like they had their own scene going. Yeah. Uh, there he created his own instruments. You know he started his own label, Zor. Let's get into this interview with Charles Ryan. Yeah. All right, we're joined on the podcast today by Charles K. Noise. Charles, thanks for being on the show. No problem. My pleasure. So we're going back a, a good while here, but I want to go back even further. Are you from the New York area? Where did you grow up? Uh, no, I was born in Portsmouth, New Hampshire, mm-hmm. and uh, grew up uh, in sort of mid-state Connecticut. Uh, spent most of my childhood there. Uh, really uh, moved to New York around 78, 79, thereabouts, and... Uh, Lived in New York for well over 40 years. Roughly 2018, I moved to where I presently am, which is a tiny town in the middle of the woods in extreme northeastern Pennsylvania, kind of where New York, New Jersey, and Pennsylvania all come together. And uh, I've been here since then. Yeah, we've talked to, you know, a few people from what mm-hmm. I what we generally called the downtown scene and it seems like right. that was the that was year zero you know 77 78 everyone was moving to new york people uh, were coming to the city uh there was a whole group of people from the west coast that came out then i'm talking about people like wayne horvitz robin holcomb dave sulson uh mark miller carolyn romberg people like that and uh and they, plus people like John Zorn and his coterie, and Elliot and myself, uh, all kind of uh, were centered around this one, I'd hesitate to call it a club, it was more a rehearsal space that became a club called Studio Henry. And again, this is now we're talking 78, 79. That was sort of the uh, ground zero, if you want to call it that for for that group of people it became our kind of second home almost in terms of 
playing gigs there, rehearsing, doing ad hoc combos of people, uh, you know, things like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, why Club Henry was it? So this was a rehearsal space that became kind of a it, performance. It was. Uh, it was located at. Uh, it was on Henry Street. There you go, Studio Henry. Yeah. Uh, but it was right at the corner of uh, Henry and Bleecker. So it was in the West Village, and it was underneath a pet shop called Exotic Aquatics. And uh, Studio Henry was basically their basement. And it was one of these uh, places where, you know, you were, you were, uh, you'd be rehearsing there, and suddenly there would be like, escape gerbils from the pet shop <laughs> running around the, the, the place, things like that. Right. Um, you know, uh, you, it was kind of an occupational hazard, I guess, mm-hmm. uh, being in that. But that's, uh, that was the place, yeah. Now, why New York for you? For music? That's why you went to New York? Uh, yeah, I mean, I, uh, I, was, I lived in this little town in Connecticut where there was absolutely nothing going on. I've, I've, of course, since learned that there were other people in varying parts of the state who were pursuing uh, experimental music and that. But as far as I was concerned, I was kind of, uh, uh, you know, the lone... Uh, lone person in the woods uh, uh, doing this where I where I lived and um, I wound up uh, corresponding with a lot of people in the United Kingdom and wound up going over there playing with some of them uh, we're talking about people like David Toop mm-hmm. Steve Beresford Paul Burwell through that I got in touch with uh, Eugene Chadbourne and uh, he was the person who invited me to uh, to the city to uh, play a gig. They, there was a performance space called the Five Front Gallery. It was on Lafayette Street. At the time, I was playing with a um, saxophonist guitarist by the name of David Tamura, and we played a, uh, um, a gig there, a duet gig, and afterwards I did a duet with Eugene. And uh, through Eugene, I got... I, came into contact with John Zorn and uh, John invited me to play in one of his larger pieces. It was a, one of the sports pieces of his, I'm trying to remember what it was. It was lacrosse, I think. And they, they did a lot of rehearsing at Studio Henry and it was at Studio Henry that I first met Elliot who had kind of come to the city. This is probably again, 79 or so. And um, he had, heard about Studio Henry and was there and uh, you know I just, we just started talking and uh, developed into gigs and uh, playing together in that and I've known Elliot ever since and we've become quite good friends. Growing up in this small town like what were you yep. into like I'm just really curious about how you discovered you know what I'll call avant-garde sure. music. <laughs> sure certainly um, well I it, I have to go back to my college days, which is, we're talking now 1970, 1973, in that period. Hmm. The thing that really uh, got me into more experimental music is twofold. One was, um, one of my roommates in college was really into Frank Zappa, and um, I had never really listened to the Mothers of Invention before, and I started listening to his records, and I was for some reason, kind of attracted to the more out 
work of the of the mothers. And then on the other hand, if you if you're familiar with that period, Rolling Stone magazine of all periodicals, Robert Palmer was writing for them, mm-hmm. and uh, Robert Palmer had these columns that he would kind of introduce new music. And there was one column that he wrote that was about Sun Ra, and I was really intrigued by that. There was another one on, um, uh, I think, like the Art Ensemble of Chicago and the whole AACM scene. And this was this was stuff that I had never heard of before and was not at all familiar with. It was really uh, intrigued by all that. And then I also remember at the time, again, in, in Rolling Stone magazine, they did a long interview with Karl-Heinz Stockhausen. I believe it was Jonathan Cott who, who expanded that interview into an actual book uh, of, of interviews of Stockhausen. And again, these were all types of music that I had really never had any exposure to and was, was intrigued by them. And I kind of went from there and I started like buying records and listening to, to these kinds of performers, Sun Ra, uh, Anthony Braxton, you know, people like that. And just, uh, it kind of grew from there. Now, are you primarily a drummer at this point in time or are you doing, are you interested in other yeah, stuff? I started, well, I've always played guitar. I've been mm-hmm. playing guitar since I was 12. And, um, I started playing drums when I was in college. Again, I, yeah. I'll have to date it roughly 
that would have been through John Zorn. Fred and I played in a, uh, again, one of John's big game pieces. Uh, and I'm thinking it was lacrosse. I can't be certain. But uh, uh, that would have been probably 78, 79. What are your recollections around the improvised music New York 1981 with Bill and Sonny. Ah, that record. That, that yeah. was a uh, that was a material uh, gig. Ah. Uh, I don't know if the record is billed as material, but it was certainly um, it was certainly a material gig. It was basically Bill Laswell. Um, I think when the record came out. Bill and Michael Beinhorn had a falling out, and I don't believe that Michael is even credited on that record. He plays on it, but um, it was basically Bill and Michael and a uh, John Zorn is on it, I believe, and then there were probably three of the most important guitarists uh, around, Derek Bailey, Fred Frith, and Sonny Chirac. Mm-hmm. And uh, and yours truly, uh, it was a it, it was a it was an interesting gig. Um, kind of a as a sidelight, there's an interesting story about what happened immediately after the gig. We were um, we were all paid two hundred dollars in cash, and Bill Laswell gave each of us two one hundred dollar bills, mm-hmm. which I jammed into my pocket. And as we went outside. The kitchen after the gig, Michael Beinhorn said, "Hey, I got to catch a cab, uh, and all I have are these hundred-dollar bills. Do you have like some smaller bills I could borrow?" And I reached into my pocket to see if I had anything, and as I did, one of the hundred-dollar bills that I was paid kind of wormed its way out of my pocket, and a gust of wind came <laughs> by, took the hundred-dollar bill and immediately blew it into a gutter. And as I went to grab it back, another gust of wind came and blew the bill down into a storm drain. Oh. <laughs> and, and in the storm drain was like, you know, you have to imagine a New York City storm drain. It's not a pleasant no. uh, substance that's, collected down there. But anyways, there's my $100 bill sitting on top of this uh, gunk that's down there. And everyone in the band sort of crowded around and everyone started like saying like, hey, let's figure out how are we going to get this this bill out? And, you know, people were saying, well, let's let's get a bunch of broom handles and duct tape them together. And and then people in the neighborhood who were walking by came over to see what we were all looking at. And then they all started like chiming in, including this one guy who, who was willing to go home and get his scuba gear. And he was going <laughs> to go down into the drain to get this. He, he didn't quite follow through on that, as we say, but it wound up someone did manage to procure about three broom handles, duct tape them all together, and then took a, like a huge ball of duct tape and stuck it on the end sticky side out so that I could like try to like uh, stick that onto the bill and then pull the bill back up. And when I did, it just sort of 
the only thing it accomplished was it pushed the bill under this <laughs> junk. And then stuff started like bubbling up like that had been under there for like eons or something. And it just was a total loss. So I um, I wound up uh, being paid $100 for the gig <laughs> that night. But, you know, yeah. uh, but it was just, uh, I remember Derek Bailey having a great laugh at the whole thing, watching <laughs> us trying to figure out, let's see, how do we get this uh, back? You know? But uh, but the gig was, uh, it was really interesting. It was, it was, uh, it always registered with me in the fact that you know, here I am drumming behind these three legends of the guitar. I mean, you, were, you talk about new music guitarists in terms of free improvise, whatever, and Sonny Chirac, Derek Bailey, and Fred Frith. I mean, you kind of start with them, mm -hmm. and um, it was a it was a uh, it was a great time playing. And I I remember uh, the way the, the the concert began. Bill Laswell, we're all standing backstage, and Bill Laswell turns to me and says, why don't you start by playing drum solo? So I said, okay. And that's how the uh, that's how the concert began, mm -hmm. uh, per Bill's orders. <laughs> <laughs> Tell me about forming the Toy Killers with Mark E. Miller. Ah, Toy Killers, yes. Uh, Mark Miller. Uh, the late Mark Miller, unfortunately. Mm -hmm. Um Mark was quite a guy. Uh, he's the person that sort of wound up being in charge of Studio Henry. It, it, everything kind of went into his name. Um, he took over from his other... Uh, it was a shared space, but people kind of dropped out, and he was the one who was left, and he took it over and uh, took on all the responsibilities for the place. Uh, Mark was a very accomplished drummer. He studied with Andrew Cyril, so he had some serious jazz chops. He also played instruments like uh, vibraphone, for example. But he would he would start playing the vibes in the normal <laughs> I use that in quotes right. uh, way that vibes are played, namely with mallets and that. But by the end of the concert, he would have. Um, he would have taken his vibes apart and he would take the, uh, I don't know if you're familiar with vibraphones, mm -hmm. they have these like long resonator tubes that are underneath the keys and he would take a set of those giant resonator tubes and would be blowing on them as if it were some giant pan pipe. <laughs> um, so he, he had a, he had an interesting take on things. He was also really into uh, pyrotechnics, oh. and um, I remember distinctly there was a gig with Elliot. It was one of Elliot's larger pieces. It was a piece called Crowds and Power, and we played at the kitchen. And Mark, at that time, would regularly uh, set up his drum kit, start playing, and then set his drums on fire and play... <laughs> them while the set was burning and it was kind of okay that's the way mark miller played drums <laughs> um elliot had um invited several members from the new york state council on the arts to attend this performance of this piece i'm sure elliot was hoping to get a grant from them right. um 
And they, unfortunately, were seated very close to where Mark Miller was seated, was playing. And they had no idea that his playing would involve pyrotechnics. So at one point, while his drums were blazing away, one of the, and this is sort of in mid-performance, one of the people from Niska, uh, literally went over to Mark and said to him, hey, do you realize that your drums are on fire? <laughs> and Mark decided to be coy and kind of uh, assume this fake shocked thing like, no, I didn't. And when he did that, the person from Niska, in, in the best of intentions, pulled Mark to get him away from these burning drums. And Mark had set up next to his drums these two cocktail shakers filled with rubbing alcohol. <laughs> and when they pulled him away from the drums, both of these cocktail shakers went over and spilled on Mark's arms, and they caught on fire. Oh, wow. <laughs> and it looked like Mark was... Um, like a waiter at a restaurant serving two flaming shish kebabs. But unfortunately, the shish kebabs happened to be his arms. And he he put them out, put, put out the fire, needless to say. Uh, rubbing alcohol does, it kind of burns in a kind of cool way. Right. And I mean that in terms of it's not a, an intense flame. I think the bottom line was I don't believe Elliot got a grant from uh, Niska for, <laughs> for this gig. Uh, and perhaps Mark Miller did have a large part in that. But, uh, yeah, we we formed this group, Toy Killers. It was basically just Mark and myself at first. And we would do uh, uh, percussion duets. Um, and then it kind of became uh, very ad hoc in terms of whoever was around hey, why don't you be a toy killer? Uh, and, you know, we played gigs with Bill uh, Laswell, John Zorn, Sonny Schrock, uh, I'm sorry, uh, not Sonny, um, Nikki Scopolitis, mm -hmm. uh, people like this. And, and it kind of coalesced and it eventually became Mark, myself, uh, Ardo Lindsay, and this Vietnamese woman named uh, T. Lin Lee, who played guitar and sang, and um, that's the that's the version that appears on, for example, there's a record called Speed Trials, yeah. um, which were these series of concerts that took place at the White Columns Gallery, mm -hmm. and um, Mark Miller, unfortunately, is not on that because he was playing in a rock band at the time. And I think they had a recording session or were on tour or something. But anyways, but uh, then it became, over the years, it evolved into something else where, where Weasel Walter was a long-standing member, and he put out um, a CD of our record called The Unlistenable Years on his Ugg Explode label. Mm -hmm. And um, the last... CD, uh, that the last recording, I should say, of the Toy Killers, was done probably in uh, 2010, 2011, 2012, sometime around there. 
And it only came out in France on this label that I can't even recall the, the name of. But anyways, while we were working on it, when Mark and I were working on it, um, we were sort of exchanging emails about um, song titles and stuff like that. And out of the blue, Mark says, oh, by the way, I'm, uh, I'm going to be going in to the hospital for open heart surgery next week. And if I don't make it, I'd like you to have this wooden eagle that my grandmother left me. And, and I'm kind of like, what are you talking about? What do you mean? This sounds really serious, you know, mm-hmm. open heart surgery. He had had open heart surgery years ago, and he had an artificial valve. And um, he, I guess, needed to get that replaced. And I kind of, at the time, laughed it off, which he did with most of Mark's antics. Mm-hmm. But I said, you know, of course you're going to, you're not going to not make it through. You're going to survive this fine. Um, you know, so let's put that in the back and just concentrate on this record. And needless to say, Mark uh, did not make it through mm-hmm. that operation. He uh, he, the operation was okay, but then he suffered a blood clot that turned into a pulmonary embolism, and he uh, he passed away. And this is again probably oh boy, 2013, I think something mm-hmm. like that. So that kind of uh, that kind of did it for toy killers, unfortunately. Yeah. Yeah, well, I'm sorry to sorry about Mark. Now, fast forwarding a bit, I want to get into some Carbon stuff. So that first record, mm-hmm. this the Elliot Sharp Carbon record, kind of seems like a bit of a precursor almost to Larynx. But did Elliot talk about a specific kind of concept behind the Carbon project, if I can call it that, to you? Yeah, I, I think no, not really. It was it was largely improvised. But it was sort of determined by the instrumentation. I remember a lot of the stuff that I did with um, with Elliot on in Carbon. He always seemed to have more than one drummer involved, and I was sort of the um, I was sort of the resident bass drummer in the sense that I would be playing two bass drums with my feet, and I had a smaller bass drum that I had that I would hold vertically and play that with mallets while I'm playing the, the two bass drums with mm-hmm. my feet. Someone like Bobby Previtt would be probably playing snare drums and, and tom-toms. And, uh, or Mark Miller would be playing some other kind of percussion instruments in that. So it was very rhythmic-centered. And Elliot, of course, was also playing his guitar at the time, in a very rhythmic way, and I mean that in terms of extensive tapping mm-hmm. and, mm-hmm. Uh, you know, this kind of thing that, not the Eddie Van Halen kind of tapping, but more, again, rhythmic, in with this melange of percussion that's kind of going on in the background at the same time. That kind of expanded into these larger groups that... Um, what I mentioned previously about that performance of Crowds and Power, which was a piece of a larger piece of Elliot's with multiple um, performers and, and multiple drummers, 
and then of course the uh, the piece that you're most familiar with, Larynx, um, which was uh, not only you not only had four drummers, but you also had people playing a lot of instruments that Elliot uh, created himself, things that he called pantars and slabs, and that, and they were also played very as if they were a, a cross between a stringed instrument and a percussion instrument. They were, they were played with mallets or, or sticks or things like that. So it, it, was, um, it was kind of like, a, a, if you can envision yourself playing in one vast drum set that happened to have a lot of other people playing on, on different parts of it, but um, that, that's kind of the way I kind of focused uh, on it as I was playing in it because of the, uh, you know, the, the, the overwhelming sense of percussiveness um, generated by not only the drummers, but again, these other um, uh, instrumentalists playing things that normally would be strummed or plucked, but instead playing them w again with mallets and sticks and that. So, uh, uh, a percussive approach to pretty much everything in the in the group, mm -hmm. and even when he used um, like a string quartet, they would be uh, they would probably have contact mics on all their instruments and would again take a take an almost percussive approach to their instruments aside from you know bowing them and things like that. Right. So I'm going to throw some names out you out at you at some sure. of the other players on this album and you can maybe just tell me yep. a bit about them we'll start with the drummers you mentioned bobby bobby was a very very accomplished uh is a very accomplished drummer i've kind of lost track of uh, uh what bobby's doing these days but uh he's had quite a he's put out quite a bit of records with his own groups and that um sam bennett also played in a group with Elliot called uh, Semantics, mm -hmm. with I believe Ned Rothenberg. That's right. Yeah. Um, Sam moved to Japan, and he lives there to this very day. And he mainly—I don't think Sam plays drums all that much. No, anymore. I was going to say he's kind of like you. He's—he he's switched over to he guitar. He plays stringed instruments and he sings a lot. He—he—he yeah. uh, he, he writes like protest songs and mm -hmm. stuff like that so that that's kind of where sam is david linton is uh another really interesting percussionist uh who nowadays plays get ready guitar <laughs> did you notice a pattern happening yeah. <laughs> here uh uh david was one of the first people who would uh he would put contact mics all over his drums and have them connected with um uh, drum, not really contact mics, I'm sorry, triggers, drum triggers, oh, yep. and connect them to MIDI instruments. So he could, uh, he'd be playing and he would be triggering all these MIDI patches. And this was quite the thing back in the early 80s when I remember seeing him do that. And he would, he would play these pieces where it sounds like there's this band playing and it's just him at the drum set triggering a guitar patch or a keyboard patch or whatever and uh, amongst other things as well as playing uh you know a drum track along with everything um and he lives in nyack or newburgh 
York, uh, slightly upstate from the city. Um, and again, he's playing guitar these days. Um, you know, uh, I mean, here's another name that I don't think was on Larynx, but she played in Carbon a lot, uh, Katie O'Looney, mm-hmm. who uh, was a drummer at the time and played on a lot of Elliot's homemade instruments. She is also, uh, she lives in uh, Ireland these days, and she also plays guitar these days. So, hey, all, all drummers secretly do. want, all drummers secretly yeah, <laughs> they we, want to be a friend. Eventually, <laughs> we eventually migrate to uh, the more dulcet tones of the guitar, I yeah. guess. Yeah. As years go by. Uh, but yeah, that, that particular record, Larynx, did have four drummers. And again, the way Elliot structured the piece, we each, thank you, Elliot, he gave each of us a little solo section mm-hmm. in there, uh, as well as, uh, you know, playing all together. But again, he also had people playing these homemade instruments very percussively. So it's kind of very hard when you listen to the record, it's very hard to kind of say, oh yeah, that's, uh, that's Dave Linton playing there right. because it kind of, you know, who's playing what sort of, it's, uh, it's, it's kind of, uh, you know, a challenge to be able to pick out individual, um, streams within this, uh, larger piece as a whole. Right. So if I'm understanding like how it was performed, maybe recorded and then both performed would have been mm-hmm. like for the two main sections, the, kind of the start and the end, you're kind of using the Fibonacci series to, uh, for your own, your own playing. And then for each solo section, would that have been more improvised maybe? Yes, definitely. Um, the, the, the Fibonacci parts from what I remember, and again, my foggy recollections are, should not be, taken as gospel truth but from what i remember it was uh it was almost as if it were a count off in other words um the whole ensemble would uh in unison do this fibonacci series which is what one two three five eight thirteen twenty one etc 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 and you, we would be playing these sort of fast ba 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 things like that um up to up to a point like let's say 21 um and then maybe repeat that and then go into freer sections uh but then sort of always relating back to to the Fibonacci um, sequence when, when certain parts of the group of the ensemble would be playing freer, other parts would be adhering more closely to the Fibonacci sequences. I see. Okay. Uh, a few of the other people on the record, we, on the show, we've talked about the Soldier String Quartet before on Elliot's Tessellation mm-hmm. Row. Uh, right. Mary, Ron... David Soldier and Laura Seaton. You mentioned their role is kind of. I believe they they would have all been tuned to what Elliot called just intonation. Correct. Uh, um, I'm not 
too familiar with how you know the the exact tuning involved, but it was very much a sort of like natural overtone kind of uh, kind of tuning. I'm looking at trying to trying to jar my memory. I'm looking at some of the other performers, and uh, one of the names I see is Leslie Delaba, mm-hmm. who uh, played on trumpet and uh, one of Elliot's homemade instruments. And Leslie is a very interesting uh, performer, really interesting trumpeter, um, who moved out to Seattle, and um, she's kind of into holistic medicine, if I recall correctly. Uh, that's become sort of more of her focus these days. And then there are people who have sort of uh, vanished uh, uh, in the sense of I just have no idea where they are or what they're doing. Uh, people like David Fulton, who who I knew quite well at the time, um, he he's now in San Francisco area, if I'm correct, and I don't know what he's doing out there. I just have completely lost touch with him. Another person is Ken Here, um, who is um, who used to run a music store in New York City. Uh, he again. I just completely lost touch with him. I have no idea what he's uh, doing these days. Uh, hope something interesting. Yeah, they're all listed as uh, as players. So yeah, they need to get their due. Yeah, for sure. And they were also playing, as you mentioned, the slab and the planter. Can you describe those instruments to me? Um, I will try. The pantar was. If I'm if I'm correct, if I don't have it mistaken with something else, Elliot was was uh, fond of like scavenging like the streets at night in New York City to find stuff that people had thrown out, and he would take this stuff and like make instruments of it. And one of the things they found were these um, there were these covers to a 55 gallon drum, and they were metal, and they had like a ridge around the outer edge of it and those ridges became sort of natural bridges um, for for the strings he would run uh he would mount like a like a set of guitar tuners on one edge and uh maybe make some notches at the opposite edge and run guitar strings off them and put other movable bridges underneath the strings as well and then uh, either play them on a tabletop or put them onto like a drum or something for more resonant. Just like long pieces of wood with, again, a, uh, a very primitive uh, string tuner bridge kind of setup on them. They were all amplified, so the, with, with, the, with the slabs it wasn't, uh, uh, resonance wasn't, that crucial in the sense that it being amplified kind of solved the volume um, issue on Elliot had a whole slew of these homemade instruments of his that were uh, that he would have varying people uh, play throughout the piece hmm. and that's kind of what I recall of them what do you recall about the recording at BC would it was everybody um, in the studio at the same time yes pretty much so yeah it was uh 
there were no, and I don't believe there were any like baffles used to like sort of isolate mm-hmm. Trump tracks or anything like that. It was more, uh, you know, getting very close to what the live sound would have sounded like in the sense that everyone was there in a, a, a BC studio wasn't the, it wasn't the largest recording studio and it wasn't the smallest. So it sort of had to accommodate everyone you know plus things like amplifiers and all the other accoutrements and um yeah it was uh martin bc the 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 engineer got a um you know per, got a pretty good balance of uh all these instruments in one space playing simultaneously um you know with a with a whole slew of microphones obviously the result is the uh, is the recording on SST. Mm-hmm. It was, of course, um, the piece Larynx was, I believe, it was commissioned by the people at BAM, the Brooklyn Academy of Music, and it was re- we we performed it live there at BAM, and I think we probably recorded it after we performed it, wanting to. Um, you know, have a couple of performances and rehearsals, et cetera, under our belt before we actually committed the music to tape. Just moving into some of the more recent stuff you've done, you have a record with Elliot that came out this year. Yes. Um, there's two recordings, actually. There's one, it's a solo record of mine. It's called Crimes in High Places, Part One. It's solo guitar. And then I did a record with Elliot, a duet record, and it's one of these uh, kind of um, COVID recordings, shall we say, in the sense that it was basically via the internet, we we recorded and exchanged tracks that way. I would record some tracks, send them to Elliot via the internet. He would then overdub on them. He would record tracks, send them to me. I would overdub on them, things like this. And that record is called Besotted, and uh, both of them are on Elliot's Zor label. Will there be a Crimes in High Places Part 2? I hope so. Uh, not in the immediate future, but uh, somewhere down the road, yep. Mm-hmm. Another fairly recent recording uh, with Henry and Walter is the Ninja Star Danger Rock record. Tell me about that. How did that happen? I have to think now, that was actually supposed to be a Mark Miller session. It was music that he wanted, and he wanted me to play on it specifically, and he had me fly out to California to record it. And um, while we were there, he also had Henry in the studio, Weasel, uh, and I think later he overdubbed John Oswald on saxophone but it was largely a mark miller instigated uh recording session that um i'm not sure what mark was going to use it for exactly but it the it sort of the tape sort of sat around uh and finally henry and weasel kind of said well hey while you're trying to figure out what to do with this mark uh why don't we just issue it as is under our names um mark appears on a couple of cuts i believe 
and which we did. Yeah, I, I, I'm still a little foggy about exactly how Mark was envisioning uh, using this in a uh, in another record, such as it was. Charles, I want to thank you for taking the time to talk to me today. I really appreciate it. It's very good. Uh, thank you for having me. All right, awesome. I, I really agree with you, too, when I hear the stories from Charles about this scene and uh, and how Elliot really helped kind of procure and cultivate this scene of musicians by, you know, in this situation, getting this, uh, this commission. Um, but Elliot used a lot of his own money, too, to record at BC Studios. I will probably get into a bit more of that, but... Um, what came out of this interview with me is, I wonder, you know, I wonder if this could ever happen again, this type of organic DIY New York avant-garde scene, like, like, does that happen anymore? I feel like things are, things kind of needed to be isolated and less available in order for this type of thing to happen. Now it happens just in a very different way, but not at all. Like, you know, you had to put in the work, you had to like walk down the street and meet people in person and like jam with them and just like work it out. And, and it would all kind of fall together and work or, or it wouldn't. Um, it's just a very cool story, a period of time, this New York scene that we've touched on a number of times over the last few episodes. Well, I think you need a city the size of New York for starters, because True. you know yeah. the number of spaces, the number of musicians, the ability to play as often as they were able to in New York mm -hmm. to kind of create all this stuff, and just love the idea of them just living in this kind of desolate part of New York at that time, you know, where nobody was living, and there was all these big warehouse spaces and Ellie's just walking around like picking junk up off the street and making yeah. instruments, you know? Yeah. There was just scuba gear lying around. <laughs> yeah. Uh, his description of this record is, you know, he says very rhythmic centered an overwhelming sense of percussiveness, I think is what he says. He, yeah. he kind of refers to it as one giant drum kit later on, Ryan, this was outside of the interview. He was telling me about this record store, in New York called the Downtown Music Gallery, uh, run by this guy, Bruce Galanter. Bruce, he says, documented this entire era, like taped every show. He says hundreds, if not thousands of recordings. He, kind of an expert on the whole scene. Go over to their Facebook page or, you know, find their website. I found it off their Facebook page. There's a little documentary about that record store. It's really fun to watch. They have live music in there too in the store and it, and the guy's name is bruce galanter yeah and it's still open man it's still wow. open and it all it is is you know this kind of stuff that's the record <laughs> store wow yeah let's get into this record ryan history lesson part two so brant before we get into uh the tracks and the making of this record let me give you a quick spaceman spiel on uh, to set the stage for carbon larynx or larynx here's what the spaceman said larynx aspires instrumentally to capture the rich essence that is the human voice 
With unyielding vision, Elliot Sharp directs, molds, and bends his ensemble carbon to this very end, an intricate yet electrically powerful performance. That's a pretty good description, I would say. Yeah. And uh, for those who don't know, there is also a ton of info on this record as well on the NEOS website, neos-music.com website. Lots of great stuff there that we'll touch on as well. Yeah. So this album, Ryan, was recorded and mixed at BC Studio, June through October 1987, uh, commissioned by the Brooklyn Academy of Music for the Next Wave Festival. Here's what Elliot told me. Uh, he says, Larynx was recorded in stages, layer by layer, at Martin BC Studio in Brooklyn. The premier performances of the piece were on November 13 and 14, 1987, at the Brooklyn Academy of Music. Uh, he says it was also performed at the Knitting Factory in New York in 1988 and Musique's Actuelle Van in France in 1989. Uh, it was released in 1988 on LP, cassette, and CD, reissued in 2007, as you just mentioned, Ryan, on German label Neos, and that's the version that you can find on streaming services. So when you listen to this on SST, uh, whether it's the CD or the LP or the cassette, it's only broken down into two parts. Part one on side one, which is like 19 minutes long, and part two on side two, which is a little over 20 minutes long. On the reissue and on the digital version, it's kind of handily broken down into six tracks, mm -hmm. representing its six different parts. So in the LP also, Ryan, it comes with Larynx notes. Not mine. Yeah. <laughs> Missing. Yeah. Uh, so he says, Larynx is constructed in six major sections with five interludes. The opening and closing use all four drummers. The remaining sections each feature one, with the other others playing slabs or samples. Starting with the second section, the order of the featured drummers is Noise, Previtt, Bennett, and Linton. Each has developed a unique vocabulary. I enjoy the contrast between them as well as their understanding of my compositional syntax. Yeah, all these notes are available on that neos-music.com website, though. Thankfully, that's where I got them. Yeah, and Ryan, I should mention uh, our podcast pal John, who has a really cool Instagram page and a blog, a blog called Unearthed Skateboarding, which uh, you can find in his IG bio, cool skate clips and writing about skateboarding in his blog. I think it's called the title on his. Instagram is dedicated to all the weirdos who still enjoy skate zines. He sent us the press kit for this episode, wow. for this record, which is just a treasure trove of info. So thanks to John and anybody out there who has a press kit, send them our way. We love getting these. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I like. I also like on that Neos website, it mentions a couple of things about how this uh, album, this composition was conceptualized. We already talked about inspired by Fibonacci and fractal geometry and throat singing. And uh, Elliot's description is that he called Carbon and this piece a conceptual flamethrower, burning away conventional ideas of structure and development and allowing larynx to be heard as a multiplexing of other than musical processes. Whoa. Like a sonic hologram 
one may listen from many angles, both the components parts and the whole are simultaneously revealed, even as they are transfigured in form and function. Another note I thought was really cool is, you know, Elliot was doing his DIY thing and recording this from June to October and bringing it in and layering it in pieces with all the various musicians. They didn't, the actual musicians though, didn't really hear the pieces until they heard kind of the fully recorded piece. So they had to hear the fully recorded piece in order to practice it for the performance to follow in November. I thought that was so cool. Yeah, for sure. So when you get right into this, it kind of comes in full force with everything right off the bat, all the instruments, and then it kind of breaks down into what I assume is a kick drum, kind of pounding out a rhythm based on the Fibonacci series. Then everyone comes back in. So as I just mentioned, the way the piece is structured is basically in six parts. The first part is everyone all together for the most part. Uh, you've got Elliot definitely tapping on his guitar bass, uh, which by the sounds of things, he would kind of do simultaneously on both necks with both hands. And it almost sounds like something you'd hear Les Claypool do, uh, less melodic but and more atonal. Uh, you've got all of the instruments, including slabs and pantars, tuned to just, you know, intoned ratios. Mm -hmm. This first part is around seven minutes long. Uh, you can pick out various sounds, uh, like some shrapnel-sounding guitar. Uh, Elliot says, to maintain the intonal system in the bulk of the piece, all of these instruments were played using only open strings and overtones. Yeah, the slab, the pantar, the violin, viola, cello, and the guitars and basses are all tuned the same way. Yeah. Uh, the second part, starts around the seven minute mark when the instruments kind of all stop on a dime and it drops down into some trumpet. Uh, this is the section which just features Charles on drums mm -hmm. and the others moving over to various other instruments. Elliot says, the interludes form a cycle of their own while connecting the main sections. The same processes are applied to groups of instruments. Explicitly different but self-similar in both internal and structural workings. The order of interludes is brass, pantars, string quartet, slabs, guitar bass. Mm -hmm. Charles's playing is fairly sparse in this section. I'm not sure what kind of the primary instrument playing is. Uh, I'll loosely call it a melody in this section. It sounds like something maybe sampled into the guitar bass possibly and played by Elliot. Yeah, if you listen to it on the Neo's version, this is around the two-minute mark. There is somewhat of a melody. Kind of the first melodic section of the piece comes in around there. So this would be, you know, track two, quote-unquote, around the two-minute mark. And it's it's really weird after you've listened for like 10 minutes to just this organic-slash-electric-percussive, you know wall of sound and then all of a sudden when this actual melodic section comes in it really catches you off guard yeah yeah so that section's about six minutes long and then we have another six minute interlude uh, which is the bobby previtt section sounds like a viola or violin i'd say elliot probably on sax bobby is you know using the snare and toms doing way bigger drum rolls than you know we heard charles doing 
the stereo effect I found with headphones on really lets you hear the, what I'm guessing are the slabs in each ear, which are kind of like the groove that everything else is happening on top of. Mm -hmm. At one point, all of the instrumentation drops out, and for the last two minutes or so, it's just, I think, the Soldier String Quartet playing us kind of out of side one. Yeah, they're doing their overtones for sure. Start. It's weird how the horns are used. Like, again, if I I listen to both the LP and the CD, and the CD is, it's cool in order to get a bit more definition in terms of how some sections or movements are broken down. But I really don't like the the two second or whatever half a second break between digital tracks. Yeah. I weigh I weigh rather flipping from side a to b on the lp when i listen to this piece um but it's interesting because the horns on i'll call it you know track one kind of sounds like a train almost like you know a freight train or something on two you've got these muted horns and then on three like these squealing horns over top of this or at the same time as the snare doing kind of like a march which which I presume is kind of like a Fibonacci count. I don't know. And then again, at kind of the four-minute four mark, everything comes right down to these strings. So yeah. it's, uh, it's a real, like, this to me is, it almost seems like a piece of music that you could have, like, avant-garde dancers going to, for, oh, sure, for sure, right? Yeah. Well, he did stuff like that, too, but... The thing for me about listening to the digital version or the CD version is you can kind of hear how they broke this down into parts better than you can when you listen to it uh, yep. on, you know, the the SST versions, which I, I don't think you hear it quite as much when you're listening to it as one piece, you know? that That is true. Again, like, I like the improved awareness of the different parts when listening to it on the digital. I don't like how you you lose a bit of the flow yeah. as it goes from track to track when it's in its digital form that's that's kind of the pros and cons for me yeah for sure uh so flipping it over we've got what i'll call interlude, interlude number four which is six and a half minutes long this is the sam bennett section the instruments all come in slow uh with elliot intermittently kind of tapping on the frets uh, mm -hmm. it's got some bass clarinet in it sam's drum kit at the time was really incorporating, you know, like junk metal. Uh, he'd traveled to Africa at this point for extended stays to train in African drumming styles, which I think you can hear in his playing. Uh, you've got Leslie, uh, David, Ken on trumpet and trombone. Uh, lots of use of that plunger to get the wah-wah effect. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah, Right at the at the four minute mark on the digital track, that's when there's just a massive amount of metal drum layers that come in too. Yeah, it's very cool sounding. Yeah, yeah. At about with about two minutes remaining, the instruments drop out, and you hear what I'm assuming are the slabs and or pantars, kind of a low rumbling sound that goes back and forth. You know, be, fluctuates between a few different notes. Mm-hmm. And then we've got interlude number five. This was, I think, my favorite section, the Dave and Lin Linton section. It's about four minutes long. Out of all six? Yeah, for me. Really? Yeah. Huh, interesting. Probably the wildest section. Like, the primary, primary instrument here sounds like probably a sax. 
the sound of which was driving my cat up the wall this week. It sounds like an air raid siren. Yeah. Like I was, when I was going through that, I'm like, okay, the first one sounds like a train. Second, we've got some muted horns, maybe jazzy, then some squeals. And then it's just metal cacophony. And then now we've got an air raid siren for part five. Yeah. More traditional jazz style drumming, I would say, in this section. I love, mm -hmm. probably what I liked about this the most was the kind of industrial sound in this section. Yeah, it's a more traditional drum kit sound for sure. Yeah. And then we go into the closing interlude or part. Uh, it's the longest of the record at over nine minutes. Starts with what sounds like E-sharp tapping out a rhythm on the guitar bass. Uh, he ends that after a few minutes. It, a different tapping section kind of starts. A lone drummer comes in on a snare. The soldier string quartet kind of starts to trickle in, then a trumpet. Eventually, mm -hmm. all the drummers are in, along with possibly slabs and pantars. At various times, this cacophony will just kind of drop out and go down to a single kick drum. And then the entire piece just ends with a fade out. Yeah, I love the parts in this track where it is where you get maybe the most melody, other than track two, I guess, or interlude two, where there is some tapping and you can tell the 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 performer is moving their hands along the strings as there's tapping to get the harmonics and to oh, create yeah. that sound it's very cool sounding but again like i don't know if that's elliot sharp is that a slab is that a pantar i have no idea and again like the tapping kind of sounds like those japanese you know that movie um that Wes Anderson movie, Isla Dogs, the beginning yep. where there's the, all those Japanese drums right off the bat, mm -hmm. totally reminds me of that in a really cool way. Yeah, I can see that. A few things out of this press kit, Ryan, which is just awesome. Uh, and some of the titles of these articles are ju is just great. This one's called Hacking and Axing, Elliot Sharp's Oral Carving. This is from the cover of Arts New York, January 1988 by James Graham. He says... To understand something of Sharp before the first note is struck, it's best to say that he is interested in all the sounds outside the Western musical establishment, mm. a world of pure-pitched and docile rhythms, and he likes to play loud. No mistake about it, the best seat in the house for a concert by Elliot Sharp is as close to front and center as you can get, where the tremendous force of the sound can envelop and overwhelm you. The rock aesthetic exploded and explored to its fullest dimensions. Mm. I'm not sure I would agree that everything that Elliot does is outside of Western sounds. I mean, industrial sounds are very Western. Yeah. Uh, here's from October 87, Downbeat for Contemporary Musicians magazine by Bill Milkowski. In Europe, he's respected and admired by the progressive post-punk crowds throughout Germany, France, Holland, and several of the Eastern Bloc countries. His dense, polyrhythmic compositions for guitars, horns, strings, and homemade instruments have been hailed by critics at such major music festivals as the Moors Festival, the Vienna Festival, and the Berlin No Wave Jazz Festival. Yet back home in the States, Elliot Sharp can't get no respect. Later on, he says, There is an underlying theme or philosophy to most of Elliot Sharp's compositions. As he explains, it's about the unpredictable versus the ordered, the idea of structure and unstructure interacting with each other and how that gives you tangents and insights into order and disorder. 
My music is generally an interface between order and chaos, with composed elements bouncing off sonic chaos. That sounds right. Yeah. Order and order and chaos. Yeah, because at the same time, yeah. for sure. Yeah. Here's from Guitar World, Ryan. Uh, January '88. The sound of two hands tapping. <laughs> That's a great title. Yeah, for sure. Again, by Bill Milkowski. Once upon a time in a faraway place, the 60s in Ithaca, New York, to be exact, Elliot Sharp played a normal six-string guitar in a conventional manner. But that was before the subversive influences of John Cage, Harry Parch, and Carl Heinz Stockhausen took hold. Now it's too late. The boy may never play normal again. Somewhere along the way, he began tapping on the fretboard of his guitar with all digits in the, in the manner of Stanley Jordan. But while Stanley's magic touch produces silky smooth tones, Elliot's more vicious maniacal touch produces loud clanging clusters of overtones. And when fed through his Ibanez tube screamer, boss compressor, and boss heavy metal pedal, it makes for some kind of sonic mayhem. Of course, they have to name drop the actual gear in Guitar Player magazine, yeah, for eh? Sure. Yeah. <laughs> Ibanez tube screamer. Here, Ryan, is a cool one that I think you'll like from the LA Times, written by Craig Lee. It's called The Impro Improvisational Prowess of Elliot Sharp. And this is a gig review. In New York, Elliot Sharp is a name to reckon with, a leading composer, guitarist, independent record company owner, and agent provocateur of the East Village no-wave music scene. You hear that a lot. He's getting lumped in with the no-wave scene. Mm -hmm. In L.A., that and 85 cents would get him on a bus. But in a remarkable performance at Bogart's nightclub in Long Beach on Tuesday, Sharp lived up to his name, cutting through to the edge of contemporary sound with his improvisationary prowess. A bonus was Sharp's local rhythm section for the evening, Mike Watt and George Hurley of Firehose. Ooh, nice. His adroitness and inventiveness place him in the company of such modern guitar masters as Henry Kaiser and Fred Frith. Mm -hmm. Though Hurley and Watt initially seemed a bit locked into static grooves, they gradually loosened up and became sympathetic to Sharp's angular thrusting. At one point, there was a ferocious dual bass exchange between Sharp's fluid twanging and Watt's finger-popping growl. Wow, nice. Lots of good puns in that one, too. Yeah. For sure. So many great titles on these articles. Gonzo Guitarists and the Big Whack Attack. <laughs> Here's a quote I liked from Elliot. Uh, I just make the music and whatever someone gets out of it, whether it's a headache or enlightenment, is fine with me. <laughs> Here's, Ryan, uh, this article in Reflex Magazine, April 88, by Howard Wolfing Jr., who... You see his name come up a lot. He still does press to this day for like Mike Watt and stuff like that. Hmm. He asks Elliot, what's up? And Elliot says, this is kind of a recap, I guess, of where we've been at. He says, the new Semantics album just came out. Uh, we've been together almost two years. I guess Ned, uh, that's Rothenberg, the Semantics sax player, had hmm. sent a copy of it to Greg Ginn at SST and he liked it. He gave us a budget to do an album for them. We're leaving for a tour of Europe. We're going to do something like 22 concerts in 24 days. A complete burnout tour. Possibly booked by Chuck. Sounds like a, a global tour. Very Chuck style, yeah. Yeah. Then the Mofungo record should be out on SST in a couple of weeks. 
Uh, and then there's the Larynx piece, which is carbon, also on SST. Here's what I got from Elliot about the artwork. Uh, he said, the images are grabs from Transformation is Our Secret, a video from 1985 by Mitsuru Hayashi. Mitsuru based the abstract apocalyptic story on the tracks from the first Carbon album as well as the second. It was shot in New York in 1985. Mitsuru had, a, had me playing instruments and running around in the abandoned TB hospital on Roosevelt Island, now completely demolished, also in a desolate construction site in Brooklyn and the banks of the East River. Uh, the video has long been unavailable for viewing, but Mitsuro is in negotiation with the XFR Collective, a non-profit organization committed to digitizing and making accessible obsolete media works created by underserved artists and communities and making them available on archive.org, uh, either as allowed by copyright law or with the permission of the artists. So I would just love to see that. Mm-hmm. So I, I'm assuming that's Elliot on the cover, like a distorted, digitized version from this uh, this uh, film that Mitsuro made. Yeah, it's interesting though, like on the Neo's version, it says photographs, David Lee, Larynx live performance, because this, this CD version has got a ton of live performance shots on it. And then it also says Janine Higgins, original larynx cover art so janine would have done the layout and then it would be this other fellow who who did the film and the screen grabs are from the film by janine i take it yeah. does that sound right sounds right yeah okay i don't know what the hell it is on the back of the lp yeah i don't know and the cover and layout on the neos version is by a different person jen's john elite or mm -hmm. joan elite it's cool to see that like the performance shots though, yeah. just El Elliot standing around like f a table of 14 instruments with his guitar bass on as well. Any dead wax on the LP, Ryan? Not on my version, unfortunately. Mm. Ballot result? Yeah, man. Ballot result. So I'm interested to hear you say that, you know, if we want to call it number five was your favorite. Mine is for sure number six. Oh yeah, I thought I thought that number six was, um, you know, really just the culmination of this big buildup of this piece, and uh, I thought it was uh, just a great ending. Nine minutes, <laughs> you know, <laughs> a great nine minutes uh, to end off this a really interesting piece of music. Um, like I said, it wasn't it wasn't easy to get into. But once you started to read about it and listen to it and recognize what was going on, very, very cool. And yet again, props to SST for putting out like something like this. This yeah. this is not going to get on a top 10 list, but it's an amazing document in it. And, uh, and for Neos to re-releasing it too, because it's now like available. Yeah. Yeah, I was really digging this this week, man. I can go with that. Part six. Nope. Number six? Yeah. Just a little splicing on our comp tape is all. Maybe a fade in. Yeah. yeah, yeah, I like that. I like okay. that. Done deal, man. Hey, thanks uh, to Elliot for sending me some info and uh, hooking me up with Charles, who was an awesome guest. So thanks to Charles. Thanks oh, to for John sure. for the killer press kit. Love getting those things. Ryan, what's next week? Next week, Brent, it's the last one of the year. It's SST, 
195, the Husker Du land speed record. What a change from this week. We're going to go to land speed record. Wow. I guess they're both pretty avant-garde in their own way, though, for the times. Interesting that way. And we've got a special guest. Yeah, Greg Norton's on the show. Hey, everyone. Thanks for listening. You can find us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, Tumblr, all at Mojack Pod. We post all kinds of info and tons of pictures of the bands and albums we discuss on the show. Our blog is mojackpod.com. Please check it out for some exclusive content. If you like what we do and want to support the podcast, the best way to do that is to tell your friends about the show. Subscribing, rating, and reviewing on iTunes is also appreciated. We love hearing your opinions, corrections, and feedback, so feel free to post on our social media sites and send us an email to mojackpod at gmail.com. Thanks again for all the support, and we hope to see you next week.